Uh, if you've got a Bible, um, why don't you flick it open to um, Isaiah? Um, we're going to be in Isaiah 6 today. Um, the words will come up behind me, but we're going to do a little bit of legwork before we get uh, into Isaiah 6. Um, so you might just want to keep a finger in it. Um, so as a church... Throughout January, we, want, we worked through um, a month of prayer, which was a great time. Um, we saw God do some uh, great things, wonderful things um, uh, around us in our communities, but also in our hearts as well in terms of stirring us. And it was just it was wonderful. And part of our series now, we're, gonna, we're just starting to look at some of the character um, of God. So there'll be a, just a couple of standalone sermons over the next few weeks where we just look at the character um, the nature of God. Um, and today, uh, we're going to be looking at holiness. Um, It's something that if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably heard a lot about, um, or maybe not a lot, but you've probably heard that word used, um, holiness. God in the Bible is described as a holy God, um, and his people are described as a holy people. And there's lots of things that are then described as holy. The word holy um, literally just means sacred um, or set apart or cut out um, for something. So um, my wife, Tanika, uh, she's somewhere here. I think she's out with the kids. But um, she has, uh, over the last few years, been collecting a tea set. Um, I know. Um, and it's, it's a very special tea set. Um, in fact, I've only ever used it once. Um, it is, if you like, set apart for special times, for special occasions when actually we might get it all out um, and do something fancy, perhaps when the t- queen comes or something like that. Um, but it's kind of very, it has a very explicit use. Um, and in that sense, you could say it's kind of, it's kind of set apart for particular occasions. It's kind of distinct from just everyday crockery. It's not your usual teapot. It's not your average teacup. This stuff is special. It's kind of set apart. And that's the idea that we kind of get, this concept of being set apart, of being distinct, of being different, of being other than um, our everyday, the usual, the norm. Um, and this idea of God being a holy God is, is, is that idea, that he's distinct, that he's different, that he's somehow um, other than us. Um, and this holy God, um, we see in the Old Testament, so before Jesus came thousands of years ago, we see that actually this holy God said that I'm going to dwell with my people. He says um, that I'm going to dwell with my people. Um, and what we see is certain times throughout uh, the Old Testament, um, we see actually uh, God dwells with his people. So um, when the people, there's this time when the people of God, the Israelites, come out of Egypt. Um, we've probably all heard the story, if not seen the Disney movie, um, The Prince of Egypt, where they come out of Egypt um, and God's presence goes with them. Um, it goes with them um, in the form of the ark. And wherever the ark goes, they set up the temple tabernacle, um, and that's where God's presence dwells with his people. This holy God comes um, and dwells with his people. Um, later on, then, we see a kind of fulfillment of that in the temple in Jerusalem, um, where we have God come and dwell in the holy of holies, the holy of holies. So he's not just set apart. He is the set apart of set apart things, right? You get that concept of he is the holy of holies. He dwells in the holy of holies. Um, And because God is holy, because uh, God is perfect, because he is um, 
perfect in all that he does and all that he is, it means that where people are imperfect or unholy, then, then they can't come in to fellowship or commune in that place. And we see that in the temple um, where the high priest could only go once a year um, and he had to go through loads of cleansing and loads of um, rituals essentially to cleanse himself so that he was, he was made holy to then go into that holy place. And what we see is actually whenever God's people turn away from him and they turn to unholiness, to imperfection, to ungodliness, actually we see the presence of God, if you like, lift off his people. It's removed from that place because he can no longer dwell amongst the imperfection, amongst the, if you like, the rebellion of his people. Um, And so God just removes um, his presence. We see that several times throughout the Old um, Testament. And it's at this point that Isaiah is writing one of these times where God seemingly has removed is, is removing his presence from his people. And it's into this that the book of Isaiah um, is written. Now, we're going to be looking primarily at Isaiah 6. Um, the interesting thing about Isaiah 6 is it's kind of like joining the story at a bit of a climax. Um, so suppose you sat down to watch Lord of the Rings um, and you flicked it on um, and you were at that point where Frodo has got the ring and he's about to cast it into um, the fires of Mordor. He's about to destroy the ring, right? If you haven't watched probably about 20 hours um, of um, film before that, then it's kind of like you've joined, you get what's going on, you get the significance that the ring's got to be destroyed, right? It's very dramatic. But you kind of miss out on this entire backstory that's just been building, 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 to the point where when he casts the ring in and it's destroyed, and um, we kind of almost miss the significance, and we can miss the significance. And uh, Isaiah 6 is a little bit like that. We come at a, a, a point of, we come at a bit of a climax, really. And if we don't understand Isaiah 1 through to 5, then almost we miss that builder we miss we miss tracking essentially with what god's people are going through what they're working through to get to this point um in isaiah 6 um so i'm just going to pull out a few verses from the first um five chapters um in isaiah it's a bit of a desperate situation um that we read uh, in isaiah 2 uh, in fact yeah there they are they come up behind me wonderful um so if we have a quick look so isaiah 2 um verse 8 Uh, Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of the hands, to what their own fingers have made. We see in God's people, this is speaking about the people of God, there's idolatry. There's this this pride, this arrogance that they, they bow down to the work of their own hands. Isaiah 3 verse 5. Uh, If I can find it. There we go. Uh, And the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow, and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent, that just means rude, um, to the elder, and the despised to the honorable. And so we get this impression, the injustice, the insolence of it. And this is, this is starting to characterize, this is starting to, to, to become a habit, a trend, a part of who God's people are. Um, and then Isaiah 3 verse 8, a few verses later, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen, um, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. And so the presence of God that's meant to dwell with his people, their very words and their deeds are defying his glorious presence. And it's quite a desperate situation, really. And essentially, these first five chapters are painting a pretty bleak picture. To the point where in Isaiah 5, 
verses 14 to 16, he says, Therefore Sheol, which is one of the names for hell in the Old Testament, therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers, and he who exalts in her man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Actually, for, for, for the people of God, for them to, if you like, turn their back on him, for them to rebel against God, for them to sin, is what the Bible calls it, for them to sin against him, actually, there, 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 is, there, is, there is punishment for that disobedience, for that rebellion. Um, and it's really clear. We see that from the first five chapters of Isaiah. Um, and to the point where actually even uh, God in his, in, his, in his, if you like, his um, purity, his holiness, um, he's actually just uh, in enacting out justice. So verse 16, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Where, this, where these people have turned away and rebelled against him, then they come into, they, they, they can't access, they can't get into um, his presence. And actually God's presence almost re, like re, repels them and pushes them away because he is so holy, because he is so perfect. Um, and then it's at this point, in this desperation, in this place of despair, um, that we arrive um, at Isaiah 6. Um, all of that, by way, is background. Um, and then now we're building up to this great moment in Isaiah 6. Um, I'm going to pray, um, and then we're going to read it together. Lord, we just pray that as we look at your word, Lord, we pray that it would prove to be living and active. Lord, we pray that it would pierce um, us to the heart. Lord, thank you, Lord, that you are a holy God. Lord, thank you that you are just. Thank you that you are perfect. Lord, thank you that your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And Lord, we just pray that as we open up your truth, Lord, that you would just come. Lord, convict us where we need it. Lord, that we might come to you, Lord, in reverence and awe and wonder, Lord, and might be changed and transformed to the praise of your glory and your great name. Amen. Amen. So then Isaiah 6. We're going to read the first seven verses together. Um, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook. And the voice of him who called, um, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. 
And that, if you like, is our climax. That's where we come in. That's where we get this great unveiling of God's majesty, this throne room that's surrounded by seraphims who call to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. And there's a few things to pick out on the way through. So verses 1 to 4, if you like, it's, it's essentially looking at um, this picture of, of God in majesty, in his holiness. God is high. He's exalted. He's just. He's perfect. Um, he's holy in all that he does. And even the angels can't even look upon him. With two, they cover their eyes. They can't even gaze upon this spectacle, this glory, this majesty. And the seraphim, the, these angels, we're not just talking about little chubby baby angels that you might see in some of those fantastic paintings. No, we're talking about mighty angels. Look at what it says about them. Um, it says, verse 4, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Uh, I don't know if you've ever... Um, Try to picture that, um, but it probably doesn't look like a chubby little baby, right? The voice of someone that shakes the threshold is is almost terrifying when you try and think of it, when you try and imagine it. Um, there was a thunderstorm last night, last last night, uh, last year, um, and it and it was. I've never heard anything like it. It was really bizarre. And it literally shocked me out of my sleep. Um, and I woke and it literally felt like something had come through the wall. It was, I mean, it was terrifying. It was just so loud and it was just, and it was so kind of consuming. Um, and it's kind of, this is the same picture that we get. That when this angel calls out, holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's that idea that everything is just being caught up in this, this, this crescendo, this cacophony of noise um, that's just raising up. And then it's at this point, verse 5. Isaiah's, Isaiah's uh, response to seeing this incredible, mind-blowing vision, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And it's in this moment, as he sees God exalted, as he sees God glorified, as he sees God as holy and perfect and right and just, it's in this moment that he actually starts to understand his own lack, his own need. I am one of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Woe is me. And this cry, this woe is me, it does two things um, for Isaiah. Um, it does two things. It One thing, it, it humbles him. It humbles him to the point where he, he realizes that he's got nothing. There's nothing he can say. There's nothing that would do justice um, to this picture of God's holiness. There's nothing um, that will, if you like, make up for the rebellion in his own heart. There's nothing that's going to make up for the rebellion of his own people. He can't say anything. Um, and, and second of all, it, it's kind of liberating in a bizarre way. Because where they might be tempted, and it talks about it in Isaiah 1 to 5, where they might be tempted to try and do all these great exploits for God, and they try in their own efforts. When you understand that picture of God and his holiness, and us in our desperation, and Isaiah in the dirt, if you like, you realize actually there's nothing you can do. 
There's nothing you can do to fill that void. There's nothing you can do to, 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 to make that, to fill that gap, to, to get across to that place where you can dwell with God. There's nothing you can do to make yourself holy. That's, that's the conclusion that Isaiah comes to. And then it's into this at verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So imagine Isaiah in the dirt, in the dust. He's been brought so low. There's no hope for him. And this seraphim, this angel, comes from the heights of heaven. It says that the seraphim were... um, Above him, above God, stood the seraphim. They came from, if you like, the heights of heaven to the, to the depths of man. They came into that dirt. They came right into that place. And the seraphim touches Isaiah's lips. And he says, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And so where Isaiah is only seen or only can only tell or only comprehend his own rebellion and his, 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 his actions and against God and his offense against God, actually this angel comes um, and he says, I've come to cleanse, I've come to purify, I've come to behold, I've touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The guilt has been taken away, the shame has gone. The sin has been atoned for. The sin has been dealt with. The rebellion in his own heart dealt with, done away with. And if you like it, it, it's almost a picture of Jesus. If we fast forward um, to the New Testament where Jesus comes, this picture of Jesus who is perfectly God, who is holy. We read in John 1, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word God in his very nature came from the heights of heaven to the depths, to the lowest point, to the dirt with us. He crossed that divide. He left glory and majesty. He left exaltation. He left praise. He left that place where the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he comes and he walks as a man. In Mark 1, verse 24. Uh, I don't think this will come up behind me. But Jesus is in the temple. Uh, and if I can just find it, 124. And uh, he's in the temple and a man that's um, possessed by um, an evil spirit um, comes to him. And, and this is what he says. He says, what have you, this is what he says to Jesus. He said, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You see, there's a revelation that comes of the holiness of God that has come and revealed itself to us. The holiness of God now dwells amongst us. And so this Holy One, Jesus, he's been sent on a mission to cleanse, to purify. He's been sent on a mission to destroy the work of sin and death in our life. And if we jump to Romans 5, this one will come up behind me, I think. Oh, yeah, 
There we go. Um, verses 6 to 9. For while we were still weak in the dirt, in the loneliness, in the pit of despair, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So when Jesus died on the cross, this holy, just righteous anger that burned against the rebellion, that burned against the, the evil, the, the, the sin around us, actually is satisfied at the cross. It's dealt with at the cross. That actually this wrath of God, that, 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 that righteous anger, that righteous, um, righteous just anger that we read about in Isaiah 5, actually we see that as being satisfied in the work of Jesus when he came and died on that cross, while we were still sinners, while we were still the lowest of the low, while we were still in the dirt, while we were still wretched, while we were still enemies of God, while we were still um, rebelling against him, he came and he died for us. The incredible thing is that's grace. That's God's grace to us. That's getting what you don't deserve. Just like Isaiah, when you understand the holiness of God and who we really are, that's grace. When you recognize that Jesus crossed that chasm that we sang about, crossed that divide, came right into our homes, came right into our lives, and he rescued us. There's nothing we could have done. There's nothing we could say. It's purely by God's grace. It's like that woe is me moment that Isaiah has. Woe is me. When we, when we understand correctly the holiness of God, woe is me. Woe is me. We're humbled by it. We're humbled by it. And at the same time, it just liberates us. It liberates us from trying to climb a ladder. It liberates us from trying to do better. It liberates us from trying to, 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 to be something that we're not. It frees us from pretending. Actually, we can just come honestly before him and just say, do you know what? Here in the dirt, here in the muck, here in the mess, that's where you find me. And Jesus came and he said, I know that's where I find you. I see everything. I know that's where I find you. I'm going to lift you. I'm going to bring you out of that place. That's grace. That's God's grace. That he would lift us. You see, God, want, God desires community with us. He desires relationship with us. That was, that was why he said to the Israelites, I'm going to make my home amongst you. You're going to be my people. I'm going to come and I'm going to visit you. Wherever the ark is, I'm going to be there. There's going to be a cloud in the tabernacle. When we get to the Holy of Holies, right, that's where I am. That's my presence. That's where it dwells with you. That's where I'm going to be housed, if you like, amongst you in that holy place, that place that is set apart, that place that is sacred, that place that is given over um, to me. And he does it in our hearts. He says, I'm coming to make a home amongst you. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. 
Jesus came from heaven and dwelt amongst us. He made his home amongst us. He walked amongst man. He walked um, amongst people and he met them in that place of despair. He met them in that place of sin. He met them in that place of rebellion. And his work on the cross lifts them out of that. We're not trying to earn salvation. We can't. We're not trying. We don't deserve it. Grace is completely undeserved. It's a free gift given. Our duty and our response is to receive it. Will we receive it? Will we receive it to the point where we say, do you know what, Lord? I'm, I'm yours. Come, I, I receive your gift of grace. I receive your free gift to me. Come and transform me. Come and lift me out of that dirt. Come and lift me out of that place of despair. <coughs> Sorry. And so what does holiness look like for us? What, is it, what, what does holiness as a way of life, what does holiness as a pattern in our lives look like? Because um, we understand God as holy. This great, majestic view that we have of the throne room. What does that mean for us? to live holy lives. What does that mean for us to then walk in holiness? Well, primarily it looks like obedience. It just looks like obedience. If you could sum up holiness in one word, it would be obedience. Obedience to the voice of God. Obedience to scripture. Obedience to submission to him. In Isaiah, Isaiah 8, uh, Isaiah 6 verse 8 It says, um, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah says in response, then I said, here I am, send me. There's nothing more profound than just simple obedience. God, just, just as an aside, God's not questioning. He's not trying to decide who he's going to send when he says, whom shall I send? It's a rhetorical question. He knows the answer. Isaiah knows the answer. Once you have that revelation of God and his majesty and his glory and his holiness, there is only one answer. Here I am, send me. There is no other alternative, really. And so Isaiah's simple obedience, it's not done out of compulsion. It's not, it's not, he's not being forced or coerced into doing something. It's a simple act of obedience saying, no, here I am, send me. I'll go for you. I can remember um, at the end of university, uh, I, was, I was asking the big questions, what am I going to do in my life? Um, and um, and God, led me, God led me to this verse. I, I, in fact, I don't even know if Tanika knows this. Um, but I felt God was calling me to be a missionary. Um, and I was thinking um, about where I might go, where I might end up. Um, and I was praying quite fervently for it. Um, and I can remember going, I would go every time I went somewhere where there was a prayer room, then I'd just like sit in there for a couple of hours and I'd be like, God, show me, show me, show me, show me, show me. Um, and I just felt God speak to me really powerfully through this word. Um, and he just, and it's just that simple, simple obedience to follow him. I felt God say, do you know what? There is, yeah, there's, there's lots you could do, but I'm not after what you're going to do. I'm after your obedience. I'm after a heart that is given to following me. I'm after a heart that would just say, here I am, send me. 
Wherever you go, wherever you leave me, that's where I want to go. And for us, you might say, well, that's Isaiah. He was kind of pretty special as a guy. Um, He was pretty special as a guy. Um, But several thousand years ago, um, God had a very unique purpose and calling on his life. So it would be quite easy to identify that sort of obedience. Because if God comes and gives you something explicit, how can you not follow in that? It's almost harder to try and work that out in our daily lives. But let's flick over to 1 Peter then. 1 Peter in chapter 1. Verse 14, it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Simple obedience. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't give way to how we used to think, our former ignorance. Don't give way to things we used to do. Don't give way to how we used to understand God incorrectly. Um, Don't give way to our former ignorance when we didn't know him, when we were far from him, when we were in rebellion. Don't give way to those things. But be holy in all your conduct. Walk in simple holiness, obedience to his call. Because he's not trying to coerce you. He just wants children that will just say, here I am, send me. He's just looking for simple obedience. Grace, grace, Grace has been made freely available to us. We receive it. And out of that, it doesn't then encourage us to then start trying to work harder and be better and do, do more and all of that. It actually stirs us to then to simple obedience. Lord, what are you saying? What does your word say? I want to live in submission to that. I want to live in submission to um, what you say. And I want to walk according to your plan, to your purpose. I want to be holy in all my conduct. You see, the interesting thing about grace is, and we can often kind of pit these ideas against each other, that grace is freely given, um, and yet obedience feels somehow like we've got we've to just keep doing, keep doing, keep doing, keep going. Um, and in Titus 2, um, it tells us, I don't think this will come up on the screen. Uh, in Titus 2, it tells us that grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's, that's the point of grace. That's what grace does. It trains us to renounce ungodliness, to turn away from that sin, to turn away from that rebellion and walk in holiness, walk in righteousness, walk in purity, walk in love. You see, it's all given to us in Jesus. On, when Jesus died on the cross... It's, it, it's that, that opened the door for us to be able to come into relationship with him. When he dealt with that sin on the cross, when he dealt with the death and he rose again, glorious in majesty, it, it made a way for us to come into his presence. And if that wasn't enough, we read in John 16 where Jesus says, unless I go to the Father, then I can't send one to be with you. Talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given as a helper, as a counsel, as a guide, one that comes and communes within us. And Jesus says, unless I go, I can't send the helper. 
And so actually, God hasn't, Jesus just hasn't just made a way. He's equipped us through his Holy Spirit to do all that he's called us to, to walk in this obedience. He's equipped us to then walk in obedience with him and in accordance with his word um, and in accordance with his will. Um, I wonder if we might stand. Um, I'm going to pray. If you are not a believer here today, um, then the Bible says that you are in sin. Um, it says that you've turned your back on God, that there is, there is rebellion in your heart. Um, it says that you uh, do not belong to him. And the first step has to be receiving that free gift of grace, that free gift that Jesus came from the heights of heaven on a rescue mission and bought with his blood a people for his own possession. That has to be the starting point. And that, that, that picture is only made more poignant when we understand the holiness of God, the holiness of Jesus, and therefore the purpose and the mission that he came with to rescue um, people and to, to call a people to himself. That has to be the starting point. Where we just come, like Isaiah, in the midst of the dirt, in the midst of the, the lowliness, the humility, just say, Lord, uh, I'm all yours. Just simple obedience. Here I am. Do what you will. Send me. Here I am. And because he comes and he meets us in that place of humility. He meets us in that place of despair. I felt as well um, as I was uh, preparing this, um, I felt, this, I f- I felt uh, God just highlight two uh, p- um, categories of people. Um, and I'd just love to pray for you in a second. Um, the first is um, those that are, you would call yourself Christians, say you're a believer, um, but you're living in disobedience. Um, you know some of those things in your heart um, where you're just rebelling um, in your heart. You're just turning your back on God. Um, and it might be, it might be more um, defined uh, for some of you um, that you're actively doing that. And for others, you just know there's certain things in your heart where you're just not walking in obedience. Um, and God just, wants to, God, just wants to, God just wants to come and love you in that. And he wants to meet you in that place of disobedience. Because the temptation at that point is to just shut down. The temptation is then to just switch off. And I just feel like God would say, no, I want to come and meet you in that place. And I want to restore you to obedience. I want to come and meet you there. And I want to do a work in your heart. But only if you will receive my grace. Only if you will receive that grace that trains you to walk out of ungodliness. That renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Um, and the second group, I felt like there were, um, there's, numbers, there's numbers of people. Um, and it's like, it's like growing up, people have just always seen you as the rebel. 
um, and, got, and, and just kind of that's almost like something that's been spoken over your life that, oh, well, you're a bit of a maverick, you're a little bit out there, you're just a bit of a rebel. Um, and I just felt God wanted to pinpoint that um, in lives and just say, do you know what? God doesn't see you as a rebel. God sees you in desperate need of his presence, in desperate need of his grace. And so if one of those two things just uh, pricked you, um, I'm, I'd love to just pray for you now. We're going to take bread and wine in a minute as well. Maybe, maybe you want to do that with somebody that you came with, somebody that you know, somebody that you trust, um, maybe in your running partners, um, and just open up. Open up and just say, do you know what? This is, this is, this is what God's pinpointed. This is what I need to deal with. Because you see, part of it for Isaiah was that realization that I am laid bare. I, I am completely vulnerable before you. And it's in that place that God comes. It's in that place that God comes um, and deals with us. Um, if, you, if, if, if you wanted to uh, put your faith in Jesus today, maybe even for the first time, um, then I would just encourage you as well just to share that with somebody, talk with somebody, and maybe somebody you came with, myself. Um, we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to pray for you. Um, but as we gather back together to sing in a minute, we're going to take the bread and wine. Um, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you that you are a holy God. Lord, thank you that you are just, that you are right, that you are perfect in all that you do. And Lord, we just acknowledge that your ways are higher than our ways. Lord, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Lord, thank you that you don't look at us for performance. You don't look at us for a track record. But Lord, you look for our simple obedience. You look for us to just hear your voice, submit to your word, and walk in accordance with that. And Lord, we just pray those areas of our hearts, Lord, that you've been pinpointing. Lord, we pray that you would just come and deal tenderly with us. Lord, we pray that your grace would be made known. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would come, Lord, and just begin to highlight certain things. Even things that we might have forgotten about for years. Even some of those conversations we might have had at school. Lord, we just pray, would you just be pricking our conscience now? Lord, that we, can, that we can come and submit in full obedience to you. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you for your grace that teaches us to walk. Lord, that teaches us to walk in holiness. And Lord, we, Lord we're all learning. Lord, we're all learning. There's still so much to learn. But Lord, we just, Lord, we love who you are. We love your character, Lord. We love the way you deal so tenderly with us. And Jesus, we just pray that you would come, make yourself known to us, make your power known through us, Lord, that we would see ourselves as transformed from one degree of glory to another. Lord, we honor you and we love you. Amen.